Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intervals podcast. We are a public humanities initiative of the Organization of American Historians, and I'm Christopher Brick here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications. And I'm here as well to welcome our 15th guest lecturer, Dr. Kylie Smith, who is with us today from Emory, where she's an associate professor with a special research emphasis on the history of nursing and psychiatry. And here, a little bit of background context is probably uh, not just relevant, but useful. Uh, one of the reasons why the OAH and my colleagues on the Marketing Communications Committee wanted to organize a public history initiative of this sort at this moment is because of the time. Right now in the United States, there is a robust argument taking place throughout the culture, really, over divergent readings of the American past. And uh, we felt obliged to be additive to that exchange with content that was topical to it. And one of the reasons why we at the committee were so grateful to be able to include Kylie's work as part of the series is because it is so responsive to that purpose. The, the past can be and often is harrowing, but when it brings us closer to a truthful accounting of events and to a truthful accounting of events of racial violence in particular, a theme that's persistently and regrettably evident throughout this podcast, throughout the history of public health, and throughout the history of the United States, to the extent that it can get us a little bit closer to a truthful accounting of that story, then we at the pod also felt like it could do a little something to reckon with that legacy. Uh, it's really the most kind of necessary work right now, and we're delighted to be able to share it with you today. Please do continue sending us your feedback, comments, and questions. They've all been really helpful, and we really appreciate them. Our contact info is in the episode notes. And with that, I yield the floor very gratefully to Professor Kylie Smith on Jim Crow in the Asylum, Psychiatry and Civil Rights in the American South. Hello, my name is Dr. Kylie Smith and I'm an Associate Professor and the Andrew W. Mellon Faculty Fellow for Nursing and the Humanities at Emory University in Atlanta. My first book was about the history of American psychiatric nursing, and while I was researching that book, I came across some interesting evidence about Southern psychiatry. That's led to my new project, which is what I'm going to talk about here today. This new project is called Jim Crow in the Asylum, Psychiatry and Civil Rights in the American South. Last year, I received a grant from the National Library of Medicine to travel to archives in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi for this project which started as an interest in the impact of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on Southern psychiatric hospitals. I was interested in trying to understand to what extent the history of racial segregation had led to current disparities in mental health care, either through a lack of funding or a lack of services. I also wanted to try and understand how other legislation in the 1960s, like the Community Mental Health Act of 1963, and the Social Security Amendments of 1965, which introduced Medicare and Medicaid, had affected the treatment and care options for African-American patients in the South. And theoretically, I wanted to try and understand the tension between care and control in psychiatric services, especially in the context of a long history of white supremacy, racism and eugenics in the South. This is still very much a work in progress and I can't cover it all today. 
but I am going to try and share some examples of the kinds of material I've come across and what it can tell us about life in Southern psychiatric hospitals for African Americans in the 1960s. First, though, a note on sources. Of course, this is a project that depends largely on what is available in the records. My research so far has taken me to archives across Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi and revealed much more than I bargained for, but also has come with some serious obstacles. In the wake of HIPAA, state and national archives have become super sensitive about records related to mental health. More than once I've had to watch as boxes with potentially useful information are literally taken off my cart in front of me. Even though I have an IRB ruling and I explain to archivists that I'm aware of the privacy legislation and am not looking explicitly for patient records, and of course I would not identify anyone anyway, anything they can give me some insight into the patient experience is regularly restricted from view. And sometimes Southern archives themselves, especially anything from the 1960s and related to civil rights, can be disorganised, uncatalogued, and sometimes deliberately hidden. There's also no consistency to the way records are kept from one state to the next, and that makes cross-state comparisons difficult. But I have been able to talk to people who have either worked in some of these institutions or were lawyers on some civil rights and patients' rights cases. These legal files have been especially useful because civil rights courts are not generally interested in hiding the truth, and it's often civil rights lawyers and activists who expose bad conditions. Legal cases have also been interesting because they've demonstrated the historical connection between psychiatric and carceral networks in these states. One of the things that immediately became visible to me early in my research is that there were close connections between these systems, that black people with mental illness or developmental disability usually found themselves confined in one or other of these institutions and that sometimes there were direct pathways and transfers between them. If we think of hospitals as being part of this network of broader confinement, then we have to think about the ways that they existed in the context of the fight for over white supremacy in the South. But what does it mean to say that psychiatric hospitals operated as part of a broader system of white supremacy? I mean that long after the Civil War, both law and everyday practice in some southern states was enacted with the explicit purpose of recreating and reinforcing hierarchical white over black relations. Medical and psychiatric discourses and practices were central to this process. In the rest of this lecture, I'm going to talk about the way we see white supremacy rear its head in southern psychiatric hospitals through an analysis of attitudes, conditions and a look at some diagnostic and treatment disparities. So let's look at attitudes first. Theorists and historians have demonstrated the long history of medicine's role in the creation and perpetuation of racial thinking. Inextricably linked to colonialism was the idea that conquered and native people were inherently less than human. At best, the noble savage, at worst, suited only for exploitation and oppression. In the American setting, this took a particularly virulent form with the idea that the black body and mind was suitable only for work in the fields and was not capable of the same range of feeling or emotion as white people. These ideas were made most notoriously famous 
by physicians like Samuel Cartwright, who spent precious time inventing mental illnesses that didn't exist as justification for the enslavement and abuse of human beings. If you're listening to this, you're probably already familiar with his work, but here's a quick refresher. In 1851, Cartwright published a report entitled The Diseases and Physical Peculiarities of the Negro Race. In this report, he invented two psychiatric disorders, drapetomania and dysesthesia ethiopica, to explain the tendencies of enslaved people to run away or to resist hard work as a form of mental illness. Cartwright also claimed that enslaved people demonstrated childlike simplicity and lack of complex emotional processes, which he claimed were characteristics of their entire race. In this report and in others like it, physicians argued that slavery was the natural state for the African in America because they benefited from the hard work and were incapable of looking after themselves outside the system. Cartwright was not an outlier. The idea that African-American minds and bodies were inherently different to white ones and usually different in the wrong way was a central theme in the development of American medicine broadly. That would take a whole other lecture to explain. So for today, it's enough to say that Cartwright's ideas continued to resonate with American medicine and psychiatry for at least another century. Central to these ideas is the belief that the African-American patient was already deficient in some way, which was reinforced by segregation and the terrible conditions for African-American patients. In terms of conditions, segregation was the first and primary strategy for dealing with black patients in all hospitals across the South without exception well into the 1960s. This took different forms in different places. Both Central State Hospital in Georgia and Whitfield Hospital in Mississippi had black and white patients on the same campus but separated them into different buildings. Alabama was the most obviously racially segregated. In 1902, it opened Searcy Hospital on the grounds of the old war fort in Mount Vernon, 30 miles north of Mobile, and moved most African-American patients there. Some patients did stay on the campus at Bryce Hospital in Tuscaloosa, but mostly this was to work on the farm, and I'll explain more about that in a minute. Segregation of black and white patients needs to be understood not just as the way things were back then or as a simple bright product of general racism, but rather as an active and deliberate technique of a white supremacy that was steeped in the ideology of eugenics and its fear of miscegenation. Eugenic thinking was central to the reorganisation of the New South in the early 20th century. Its practitioners, who were also often the people who ran state hospitals, drew on existing racist ideas about the basic inferiority of African Americans, combined with a belief in their ability and their authority to control reproduction for the betterment of the white race. This is not just my interpretation as a historian. These were the actual stated claims of physicians, psychiatrists and administrators at the time who ran the institutions as catch-alls for people considered a threat to the reproductive integrity of whiteness. This is one reason these institutions get so overcrowded. They were often the only public facilities in their respective states and became warehouses for both black and white developmentally disabled, elderly, alcoholic and mentally ill people. Procedures for admission were ad hoc, family or community members, including the police, could easily petition in a probate court for a person to be admitted with no medical evidence necessary. 
once admitted they were at the mercy of an underfunded, overcrowded system that really operated as custodial institutions rather than places of treatment and care. For many African-American patients, however, segregation was the most benign manifestation of white supremacy. But it did not go unchallenged. From the late 1940s, using papers from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, I've begun to find evidence of whistleblowers and other community activists concerned about not just segregation as a civil rights issue, but explicitly with the way that African-American patients were being treated. At Whitfield Hospital in Mississippi, for example, African-American patients were on the same campus as white patients, but in separate buildings, sometimes in basements, often shackled. If a patient was able-bodied, they were put to work on the hospital farm. There was no oversight, no inspections, no state mental health board. Attendants and medical staff were all white and they were underpaid and not trained. The racial dynamics were at best hostile, at worst deadly. In 1947, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People received this letter from a worker at Whitfield, which I will quote verbatim. Dear Sirs, I have been Chief of Patrol at the State Hospital for the Insane People at Whitfield Miss for several months and they are making slaves out of the coloured patient out there. They work them from before day to after dark. One of the big shots by the name of Stag shot one of the patient eyes out and the day superintendent by the name of Smith carry a gun all the time. I am turning my resignation in and quitting. Please do not mention my name. Yours truly, Hull Watkins. There's a lot to consider in this letter. For a letter to come to the NAACP from a white man in Mississippi because Mr Watkins was undoubtedly white is extraordinary. The NAACP received a number of letters like these starting after World War II, either from concerned patients' rights organisations or patients or workers themselves. But this is one of the earliest and it's the only one i found from Mississippi so far. It's significant because it speaks to the existence of a moderate white counter-narrative to the tactics of white supremacy, at the same time as it reveals the way that even a psychiatric hospital continued to replicate plantation relations of fear and violence. Watkins refers to the way that patients were being worked like slaves, as well as the threat of an actual violence under which they were forced to live. The work that Watkins is referring to is the Asylum Farm, Whitfield sat on 3,500 acres of prime land and ran an extensive planting, crops and livestock enterprise, including its own dairy. Black patients worked that farm under the guise of agricultural therapy, but therapy exercised at the point of a gun is no therapy at all. At the time of this incident, Whitfield was in a dire situation. World War II had drained the state of medical personnel and money for public services. I doubt much would have changed except that a white patient, Fred Cheney, wrote a series of letters about conditions which a worker smuggled out to the slightly liberal newspaper editor, Hodding Carter, of the Greenville Democrat Times. Carter was relentless in his campaign against state corruption, and the articles he wrote based on Cheney's letters forced a legislative commission and a governor's tour of the facility, which led to a commitment of money for renovations and a new administration. In 1949, the state hired Dr. William Jackwith, a Navy physician, to be the new superintendent at Whitfield. Later in his life, Dr. Jackwith recalled his first impressions of the hospital. When I first came, I was appalled at what I saw, he said. I almost left immediately. I was so upset with the total picture. Things were terrible. It made grown men cry. I was the only physician for 10 buildings and 800 patients. The buildings were in a terrible state of disrepair. 
the patient slept on handmade mattresses, sacks stuffed with hay. He told of how the patients had an incomplete diet with a total caloric intake of less than 800 calories a day and, quote, many patients suffered from malnutrition. It reminded me of a POW camp. It was the result of complete public and legislative apathy. Jaquith was on a constant campaign to raise the state appropriation from the hospital. When he took it over, he was feeding patients on only 98 cents a day per patient. By 1963, with an inpatient population of 4,500, half of whom were black, Jake was reported that expenditure had risen to only $2.37 per patient per day, which was still the lowest expenditure for mental patients in the nation. Jaquist's concern for conditions did not necessarily extend to the African-American patient. In a report to the State Department in 1951, he wrote, quote, the hospital is very overcrowded at the time, especially the infirmaries where the old and senile are housed. The Negro section of the hospital is overflowing and we have had to open up basement space for the overflow. Two of our Negro patients' buildings are used for housing quarters for employees. There's no relief in sight at the moment to transfer Negro mental defectives. Jaquist's aim with this report is not necessarily to garner sympathy for black patients. Rather, it's to further enforce and entrench segregation. His intention was to bring to the attention of the Board of Trustees and the State Department how bad things were for white patients and employees as part of his repeated request for more funding. If he was moving black patients into the basement, The problem was not that they were in the basement, but that his other largely white employees had to live in accommodations that were previously only fit for black patients. Interestingly, though, Jaquith had no patience with the farm and saw it for what it was. In 1950, I told them I'd never been a farmer, he said. We closed the farm and the dairy herd. If a patient was well enough to work here, he was well enough to be at home. This was not the attitude of administrators in either Alabama or Georgia, both of which continued to run farms into the 1960s. Georgia's farming operation is complicated because it overlapped with the Georgia State Prison Farm, and I'm still figuring out how they worked. But I have a much clearer picture of the farm operations in Alabama, thanks to the efforts of local NAACP activists and lawyers. From the 1950s, John LaFleur, ex-secretary of the Mobile branch of the NAACP before it was banned by the Alabama government, in his new role as the director of casework for the Nonpartisan Voters League, began to receive letters of complaints from workers and family members associated with Searcy Hospital in Mobile. In the 1950s, he wrote to the governor of Alabama complaining about segregation in pay and conditions for workers but received no response. In the 1960s, he took up the case again with complaints, letters and a petition about conditions and segregation. In 1963, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund won a big case in North Carolina called Simpkins v. Cone Memorial Hospital, which made segregation in medical facilities unconstitutional. And this was reinforced by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act in 64. LaFleur used these legislative moments to constantly agitate for change at Searcy Hospital, which was close enough for him to visit. In 1966, Henry Stiles, a law student and intern with the Civil Rights Research Council, worked with LaFleur to investigate complaints from patients' family members. LaFleur's files contain handwritten notes detailing a plantation-like system where, quote, Both Negro men and women are transferred to Bryce Hospital, Tuscaloosa and Northport for farming. Negroes stay on farm at Northport. 
some of whom are transported by bus or truck to Bryce, then return to Northport each day, end quote. Northport was the site of Bryce Treatment Centre too, but the only form of treatment here was work on the farm. Patients transported to Bryce itself worked in the laundry and kitchen. The notes also document that white employees were able to take Negro patients home to work in their house and return them at the end of the day, nothing short of a kind of convict leasing system. Farms and work are not uncommon in psychiatric institutions. The idea of work as therapy built on a long tradition of what was called moral treatment, where work and occupation were believed to be therapeutic. But in the South, these practices lingered long after they'd been eradicated elsewhere, serving as a powerful reminder of the prevailing social order. Styles and Lafleur, as well as respective governors, also received numerous reports of brutality and evidence of overt white supremacist violence within the psychiatric hospitals. In an affidavit, Mrs. Brown reported that her son Joe Nathan Jr., a patient at Searcy Hospital, had been, quote, beaten by two white hospital employees named Johnson and Newton. My son took his father and me to one of the toilets and showed us welts and blisters on his left buttock, which he said resulted from the two white men beating him up with a cut-off water hose. He explained that one of the men held him while the other one beat him after locking him up. End quote. While beatings and abuse are a common problem across overcrowded and badly managed psychiatric institutions, Mrs. Brown was in no doubt about the racial implications of this attack, which she believed, quote, was due to strong race prejudice in view of the fact that a number of white employees of this hospital are alleged to be members of the Ku Klux Klan. This is not mere anecdote. As Mrs. Brown stated, white employees of the hospital were in fact arrested only the previous week after participating in a Klan rally at Mount Vernon and shooting into the house of a Negro woman and attempting to burn down her house. LaFleur's continual activism finally led to the arrival of federal government inspectors in Alabama. The Department of Health, Education and Welfare had established a small office, the Office of Equal Health Opportunity, in 1965 in order to force compliance with the Civil Rights Act. In late 1966, the office sent its special counsel, Marilyn Rose, to see for herself the conditions that prevailed in Alabama. In an interview conducted in 1997, Rose remembered her visit to Alabama. Quote, while the staffing and services at Bryce as a whole were a mixed bag, services for patients at Searcy were, were custodial and the general wards were horrid. There were only five doctors four of whom were foreign, whose primary language was not English. They were not licensed in the United States and did not have credentials as psychiatrists in their native country. The fifth psychiatrist was the administrator, obviously not conversant with modern psychiatry and seemed to be running a southern plantation. A visit to the wards suggested to me what one might have found in the 19th century at a time when mental patients were warehoused. The wards were like prison cells. It was a scene out of a Kafka play. After her inspection, Rose documented her findings in a formal report to the U.S. Surgeon General. While the documents do not detail the specifics of treatment, they do note that no black patients were part of a large public health service grant for young men with schizophrenia and that inferiority in treatment and care was compounded by discrimination and lack of spending in staffing. The documents also noted that there were no black professional staff members, such as physicians, psychologists and nurses. 
at the three institutions. While Bryce Hospital offered extensive nurse training for schools throughout the state, which supplied ready labour, no nurses training program had ever existed or been sought at Circe. Similarly, expenditures at Circe were proportionally lower per patient than at Bryce and Circe had never applied for any public health service grants. Rose's observations demonstrate that separate but equal is never a reality in medical or psychiatric facilities in Alabama. Instead, the practice had created a space where people could be removed from visibility entirely and where black patients existed in an almost complete vacuum of approaches to treatment or care. In this broader context of the long history of racist attitudes about the black psyche and the continuation of plantation practices, it's hardly surprising that we would find vast disparities in both diagnosis and treatment of black patients compared to white. Here again, I run into an issue of records or the silences they contain. There is no standardised way that each of the three states in my study kept records, so a clear comparison across time becomes difficult. I said earlier that I was not pursuing patient records, but even the formal institutional records are patchy. Annual or biannual reports, formal documents usually compiled by the respective institution's superintendent, survive from the 1950s but taper out in the 1960s. Even so, I have some interesting data samples from Georgia and Alabama that I think are particularly interesting. So let's look at Georgia first, where I have annual reports from Central State Hospital. These reports are relatively comprehensive up until about 1963, and then a few things start to change, like the way that people are categorised racially and the amount of detail that's collected. But up until 63, the hospital's records office compiled very detailed tables for the annual report. These tables set out patient data registered by first admission and then readmission, broken down by race and gender in an overall summary table, and then further breakdowns by race, age, and gender within each diagnostic category. In 1963, Central State logged a total population of 12,014 people, making it one of the largest psychiatric hospitals in the world. The population breakdown demonstrates that white women were the largest population with 4,145, white men at 3,454, non-white women at 2,332, and non-white men at 2,083. It's impossible in the time I have here to give you a comprehensive overview of the diagnostic breakdown, so I just wanted to present some data relating to the top diagnostic categories. In terms of a reference for diagnosis, Central State is using DSM-1, which dates from 1952 and won't change again until 1968. That's the main diagnostic manual for American psychiatry. So the tables in the annual report set out rates and types of diagnosis are organized into larger groupings like acute brain syndrome, chronic brain syndrome, psychotic reactions, personality disorders, transient situational personality disorder, and mental deficiency. In 1963, the top three diagnostic categories are schizophrenia, mental deficiency, and depressive reactions. Together, these diagnoses accounted for 9,700 of the total 12,000 diagnoses. So let's take a closer look at schizophrenia. 5,220 people were given this diagnosis. Of this total, 36.5% were white women, 25% white men, 
20% non-white women and 17% non-white men. Historically, that's not particularly surprising. Schizophrenia was largely considered a white woman's disease at this point in time and wouldn't start to shift towards black men until after the civil rights movement. But if I flip my analysis away from the makeup of the diagnostic category itself and look at the prevalence of a diagnosis within each racial category, we see that, in fact, schizophrenia generally was diagnosed among non-white patients proportionally more than white ones, with this diagnosis accounting for 46.6% of the diagnoses for black women. There's not a huge gap between black and white women here with 45% of white women given this diagnosis, but that gap widens when it comes to men. 43% of black men diagnosed as schizophrenic compared to only 38% of the white men. This same sort of pattern holds for depressive reactions. I was surprised to find that black women are the largest group diagnosed here, accounting for 35% of the total depression diagnosis, while white women accounted for 30%, black men 21%, and white men only 13%. Within the group of black women, depression accounts for nearly 14% of all of their diagnoses, 9% for black men and 6% for white women, and only 3.5% for white men. Mental deficiency is an interesting category. It accounts for almost all of what we would now call developmental or intellectual disability from very low IQ to Down syndrome and autism. Here we see an overrepresentation in terms of white men who are actually only 28% of the population, yet they account for 36% of those classified as mentally deficient, while white Women are 27% of the diagnoses here, non-white men are 21% and non-white women 15%. When we look at this diagnosis as a percent of the diagnoses within each racial group population, we see that in this instance the disparities fall along gender lines. 20% of the white men and 19% of the black men compared to nearly 13% of the white women and just over 12% of the black women receiving this diagnosis. What does all of this mean? Well, I still need to do more work with the statistics and they really only make sense if we can look at change over time. I think the most interesting thing that I've found so far is that black people are more likely to be classified as either schizophrenic or depressed than white people and that these two diagnoses make up the bulk of diagnoses for those populations. For black women in particular, these three diagnoses account for more than 72% of their total diagnosis followed closely by 71% for black men. In comparison for white women, the top three account for 65% of their diagnosis and only 62% for white men. So my hypothesis here is that there is a less of a range of diagnoses being used for non-white people, indicating a lack of complexity and a lack of nuance when it comes to diagnosing the more subjective personality disorders. Black women in particular are more likely to be labelled as schizophrenic than anyone else. In the absence of detailed and individual case files, I can only theorise about why this might be the case. Given the broader social context and the long history of eugenic thinking and practice, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to link older ideas about the lack of complexity in the black psyche to these diagnostic trends in the 1960s. Also largely absent in the records is information about how people were treated once a diagnosis was made. None of these annual reports from Central State present any coherent information about that, apart from references to the pharmaceutical budget. This is also the largely, largely the case in Mississippi and all 
Alabama, although I do have one interesting set of comparative data from the annual reports in Alabama in relation to the use of electroshock therapy, as it was called at the time, and I'll just call it EST from here. I have some data that shows several differences in the use of EST for white and black patients, and I was able to run a comparison between 1954 and 1964. The most telling numbers here are the instances of EST presented as a percentage of patients. That is, in 1954, almost 42% of the population at Searcy Hospital, the black-only facility in Mobile, received some kind of EST, but generally less instances per person on average, meaning it's more widespread. At Bryce Hospital, by comparison, roughly 20% of the population received some kind of electroshock therapy. In 1964, this has changed so that less people overall are receiving EST. At Searcy, it's come down from 1,100 to 517, and at Bryce, down from 1,026 to 720, which reflects a general move away from this treatment to psychotropic drugs like Thorazine. But the rates of treatment for black patients is still almost double than that of white. At Searcy, still 19.6% of the population are receiving EST, while at Bryce, which is still all white patients, only 11% are subject to shock therapy. Again, what are we to make of this discrepancy? There's no explanation given in the reports, and I have no evidence of any therapeutic rationale, except I would argue for the persistence of the belief among Alabama physicians that the African-American was more aggressive, more dangerous, and less qualified for psychotherapeutic approaches. The prevalence of schizophrenia as a diagnosis and the use of labour and EST as treatment regimens speak to a persistent belief that African-American mental illness was located in the body and could be treated in the same way, often violently. This kind of data also speaks to the tension between care and control in the treatment of African-American mental illness, and here I defer to the experience of the community itself. As John LaFleur in Mobile worked to build a case against segregation and abuse in Alabama's psychiatric hospitals, local people were outspoken about their own belief in the way that psychiatry was being used as a form of social control linked to white supremacy. The civil rights newspaper The Southern Courier ran a surprisingly large number of stories about the Alabama mental hospitals and followed a desegregation case closely. It provides some first-hand accounts of conditions at Searcy and gives a rare glimpse into the experience of patients and families. Throughout 1966 and 1967, the paper ran a number of stories about patient activism and the way that Searcy Hospital was used as a place of control and punishment. On March 12, 1966, for example, a letter to the editor reported, quote, on the 15th of February, the patients at Searcy Hospital marched for better food and better clothing. They also marched at the front office to see Dr. Rowe about getting better treatment from white employees. They say the white employees curse them out and throw their food to them when they go to the canteen. After the march, some of the police came to the front office of Dr. Rowe and handcuffed some of the patients, end quote. A series of articles about the experience of Miss Pruitt also demonstrated the way that people could be confined against their will for no real reason and with no real medical oversight. In June 1967, Miss Pruitt was committed to Cersei because she argued with an administrator at the Mobile General Hospital about her entitlement to benefits. Miss Pruitt suffered from no more than a disability in her left leg, 
yet she was committed to Cersei by a doctor at Mobile General who said, quote, I looked her over and classified her as paranoid schizophrenic, the doctor said last week. Of course, he added, I'm no psychiatrist, end quote. Once admitted, Miss Pruitt was submitted to three rounds of electroshock treatment against her will. Superintendent Dr. Rowe justified the treatment by arguing that, quote, after a patient is legally committed, we give them the treatment we think they need. She did cause quite a bit of disturbance, Rowe said about Miss Pruitt, but she was improving, end quote. For the superintendent, improvement meant compliance, silence and obedience. Miss Pruitt was released because of the continued protests of some local white women, but for the patients who remained, the situation was dire. In one story, the report paper reported many of the same conditions that the health inspector Marilyn Rose had found, a lack of good food, unsanitary and overcrowded lodgings, abuse by white workers and enforced labour. The paper reported, quote, you can buy food at the patient canteen. The canteen is run by white people. The food you get there is thrown, not handed to you like you were a dog. Some patients volunteer to work, but others are forced. They carry clothes on their backs to the laundry rain or shine. If they're not there, they are looked for as if they were paid to work. Men and women, some women go to the field to work the garden. About two of the patients worked for Dr. Harry Rowe. He gives them a very, very small salary. If you talk back to an attendant or sass them as they call it, you're given electric shock treatment. All the attendant has to say is, I want this patient shocked and the patient is taking him for a treatment. The usual treatment is 10 shocks, but sometimes it is more. If the patients refuse to ha- eat the half-cooked or dirty food, they are sometimes given shock treatments. A lot of patients have been shocked and never awakened again. At the end of this powerful article, the writer argues that the only solution is integration. The belief that conditions would only improve if black and white patients were treated together formed the impetus for medical civil rights cases in the same way as it had for educational integration. Alabama's continued refusal to voluntarily integrate its mental health facilities finally led to a court case in that state, fueled by the investigations of LaFleur and Marilyn Rose at HEW. On November 17, 1967, a complaint in a case called Marable versus Alabama Mental Health Board, which was a class action on behalf of patients, was filed in the district court by the DOJ and the LDFs Jack Greenberg, Michael Meltzner and Conrad Harper, along with Birmingham civil rights attorneys Orzel Billingsley and Demetrius Newton. The named plaintiffs were Loveman Marable from Bryce Hospital, a client of Newton's, and the Joe Nathan Brown Jr. from Searcy Hospital, the subject of the affidavit secured by LaFleur in August 1966. This case was consolidated with another case lodged by the state of Alabama, arguing that the federal decision to withhold funding because of non-compliance with the Civil Rights Act was a breach of states' rights. Together, the cases fell under the purview of civil rights upholder Judge Frank M. Johnson Jr., who had no patience with Alabama's political game playing. On February 11, 1969, the court handed down its finding in what Judge Johnson described as, quote, long and complicated litigation over a rather straightforward problem, end quote, that segregation in Alabama's psychiatric hospitals was illegal and unconstitutional. He gave officials 12 months to integrate Bryce and Cersei's patient population and declared sections of Title 45 of the Alabama Code, which allowed admission without due process, in violation of the 14th Amendment. For Johnson, the cases were an important part of his own overall strategy of using judicial activism to fight desegregation in all areas in Alabama. 
He likened his approach in these mental health cases to the way he had ruled in educational segregation, quote, that the patients were entitled to non-racial staff assignments. Johnson signaled his intent to do more than just rule against the state, but also to demand affirmative action in the transfer of patients, the employment of staff, and in the pay and conditions for employees. In his final ruling in Marable versus Alabama Mental Health Board, Johnson also noted that the record, quote, reveals considerable expert testimony to the effect that there is no medical justification for the segregation of patients and personnel in the Alabama mental health system, end quote. While he reserved the right for physicians to make medical decisions that included a patient's fears and delusions, he warned the state that, quote, racial classifications are always subject and that medical justifications for segregation would not fare well in his court. He also ordered that the administrators of the Alabama mental health system report to the court on their integration progress every six months until the court was satisfied. The extent to which the case led directly to integration, however, is blurred by the impact of other moments in the care of the mentally ill. The Community Mental Health Act and Medicare, along with Johnson's rulings in another significant mental health case, Wyatt v. Stickney, combined with other cases about the need for minimum standards and a right to treatment, forced a rapid downsizing of institutional care across the U.S. This trans-institutionalization meant that the state could shift the burdens of care to nursing homes, general hospitals, and eventually to prisons. Similarly, the court finding that there was no medical justification for separate and unequal treatment based on race did not miraculously end the practice. The idea that it was no longer acceptable to talk about racial segregation created a kind of race-neutral language that worked to hide continued disparities because many mental health institutions stopped recording the race of patients entirely. This was reinforced by the same freedom of choice rhetoric that was being used to justify continued educational segregation. In the case of mental health, families and relatives of patients were now free to have patients committed to any institution, usually the one closest to home, thereby reinforcing existing geographical segregation. At the same time, the rhetoric of racial difference between the white and black psyche found new forms of expression in the marketing of race-specific drugs dressed as science and changing diagnostic criteria which now cast the African-American man as inherently more aggressive. This is not new rhetoric, really merely a repackaging of much older ideas in the history of American psychiatry and medicine. Of course, none of these ideas or practices were news to African Americans themselves. They knew all too well that medical spaces were not necessarily safe ones and that the institutions that purported to care for them were in no way exempt from the rhetorical and actual violence of white supremacy. Patients, relatives and activists approached those institutions with caution, yet continued to demand their rights as citizens and taxpayers. It was through these demands that activists sought to end Jim Crow in the asylum. Today, all three of these states are in court over the lack of mental health funding for prisoners. These big hospitals in their original form no longer exist, but the poor and people of colour across the South continue to find themselves at the mercy of separate and unequal mental health care as white supremacy is remade beyond the asylum walls. Probably won't surprise you to learn that after listening to that, I had plenty of questions. I'm sure you do as well. I hope I've done a good job of anticipating some of the ones you would have asked yourself. Enjoy. Kylie Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And thanks for the lecture too. Um, 
I wanted to, there was a lot in there. So uh, I, I, I took some notes and I wanted to get to as much as we possibly can in the time that we have, the short time that we have. Um, you write, I, I guess I want to start here. Um, uh, at one point, sort of in earlier part of your lecture, you talk about your interest in Southern psychiatry and you characterize it that way. And I think for Many listeners, it's going to come as a bit of a surprise that there are regional variations to medical practice that warrant historical inspection. Yeah, it, I, I often get asked about what is the difference between northern and southern psychiatry, if you can make that uh, distinction. And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. So it depends on the time. Um, if I think about what's happening in the South after World War II and the 1950s and the early 1960s, there is a kind of distinct difference in some ways that is born out of the reality that education is still segregated, very highly segregated. So it's, there's actually very little opportunity for Southern medical and health professionals to get educated um, in psychiatry, and they tend to have to travel north. Uh, and that's definitely the case for Black healthcare providers who have very little options of training in the South. Right. So it's not that they're necessarily distinct, because there is this translation of ideas and people do move around. But I think the circumstances in which people get to practice are distinct and the structures that support the health systems are very different in the South, still really heavily segregated. And then there's a transformation that happens like beginning that coincides with the civil rights movement. I think that's going to be, you know, we usually think of the civil rights movement as happening in medicine but it does to a certain extent, right? Right, it, it does. And I think people are usually very focused on education and that that's, that's the main domain of civil rights and they're not necessarily as aware of what is happening in the medical civil rights domain, uh, which, as you say, is really heavily segregated uh, well into the 1960s. You know, and the southern states were very hesitant. And I say I generalize when I say the southern states, but some were very hesitant to desegregate. And in a way, medical practice and healthcare practice made it harder to integrate because of this belief about bodies, right? And the intimate yeah. nature of healthcare work. Uh, and I really see that particularly in relation to nursing care and the absolute belief that black women should not be laying hands on white people. So th that is a real source of tension for quite some time. How does that get reconciled? Because you're, you're, you're talking about these disparities in terms of the training that's available to African-American providers uh, is pretty limited in the South and, and it's probably pretty limited everywhere, but particularly in the South, right? Uh, so how are those lines policed and maintained when, as you say, there is so much intimacy inherent in healthcare provision? Yeah. I mean, you talked about separate and equal, right? So there is a very, uh, a, a very strong policing of the separate through the creation of separate facilities. 
often out of mind, out of sight. And I think that's really the definitely the case in psychiatry where you can literally have a place that is somewhere else. You know, psychiatric hospitals generally are not located in major cities. They are out in the rural areas to some extent because of the history of psychiatry generally. And then when people want to segregate those facilities, they literally create a different place to put people. And um, right. So that that's, I think, the, the, the separate part of it is very, very significant. And it does seem like the disparity in investment we see in school systems also carries over into the psychiatric space where the white facilities are kind of much better funded and have uh, better outcomes than, than the ones for the African-American population. Were these real dungeons? This is where the records are um, tricky because nobody is writing down, oh, we treat our patients really badly. Right. Right. So you need to be able to read between the lines a little. And thankfully there were plenty of people who were not happy about conditions that were existing for African-American patients. So I think about newspaper exposés that were really fundamental in showing how bad it was for everybody for, mm-hmm. you know, and often the focus in those exposés was on white patients, like this is terrible, the way we're treating our poor white disabled people. And then the subtext is if it's bad for white patients, it's horrendous for black patients. And I do have evidence of literally black patients in the basement yeah. uh you know in in buildings with substandard uh electricity with no furniture with people just being put in a large space um with very inhumane yeah really very inhumane yeah yeah were there was it understood to be inhumane at the by which I mean to say that uh, the inhumanity is 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 part of the social control. It's part of the enforcement mechanism by which white supremacy is is perpetrated and perpetuated. I think there is a deliberate le- deliberateness to it, but also a lack of funding generally. Yep. So even in the 1950s when there's a very fierce segregation, superintendents will write about the lack of funding and how they cannot build better services or they can't improve conditions or employ more people because the state appropriation for mental health services generally is so small. And that is something that is specific to um, some of the key southern states, this refusal for the state to spend money. And then there is um, what I would call a... um, The inhumanity comes from the belief, I think, that African-American patients are less human generally. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you see the transmission of ideas almost directly from the plantation that African-American people don't feel pain, that they don't get depressed, that they don't have a complex emotional system 
And that justifies this really lack of proactive and aggressive treatment. You, yeah, you touch upon this briefly, the way that uh, white supremacy itself is medicalized, is, is, is built into um, the way that, not just the way that these patients get described, right? Get characterized in clinical language, right? But the assumptions that these physicians and, and, and treatment professionals, clinicians are carrying into that, that patient-provider relationship. Uh, you talk about Samuel Cartwright as kind of providing an intellectual, an early intellectual scaffolding, you know, for this kind of medicalized construction of black intellectual disability, inferiority, childlike simplicity, suggestibility. When is he writing that stuff? And and is that in the period that you're, because it's earlier than the period you're describing, but it's still quite influential, right, over... Right. It, it is really interesting to me to see the fact that Cartwright wrote his um, trash in 1850s, for example. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm looking at a period that's 100 years later, and there are times when I feel like he could have written what I'm reading. You know, it, it is really quite disconcerting at times to see white physicians continue to describe their black patients in some of that same terminology. Um, you know, and I, I don't mean that they that they are literally taking his ideas. I, I don't even I doubt that any of them would have read him. But I do think that the the ideas that he espoused become so foundational to American psychiatric practice generally that they just become assumed norms. You know, and it's very hard for physicians to break out of them. You know, and I have a really interesting paper written from late in the late 1950s from a very intelligent psycho psychiatrist who is talking about psychotherapy and its usefulness or not for black patients. And he does this thing where he's like recognizes environmental trauma, recognizes the impact of the history of racism, and then will flip it so that it becomes a personal and moral failing rather than a structural issue. So there is still this kind of underlying assumption that somehow black patients are psychologically and emotionally different. You have a particularly harrowing quotation passage that you quote verbatim in the lecture from Hal Watkins, is that, am mm -hmm. I pronouncing that correctly? Hal Watkins, who uh, kind of refers to the compulsory labor imposed upon these patients, required of these patients uh, as tantamount to enslavement. I think it's really important to remember that these are institutions that are wholly staffed by white people. Mm-hmm in all of the states that I'm looking at. They do not employ black people, generally speaking, and unless they're at the very lowest level of work. So when we talk about who is running these institutions, there might be a small amount of white physicians and registered nurses, and then the rest of it, the majority of the people working in these places are untrained, mm. underpaid, just local white people who they call attendants, right? And so to think that you have people... And I don't mean that everyone in the South is bad and always has been. That's obviously not what I mean. But if you think about the 50s and 60s in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, you're looking at relations, social relations that are really built on the idea that white people are superior and mm. that the black person needs to be kept in their space. 
So to see um, violence used as a technique is not at all surprising to me, yeah. uh, but it is it is shocking, and it it is it happens in multiple places, and it happens um, through neglect, I think, but also just through this standard. Um, this is how we treat black people. There is this very serious barrier, right, to to these documents, to these records. And uh, how are you managing that and how are you finding it? Yeah, the, the records are a challenge and they are also extremely interesting. Um, and I think about the, the usefulness in particular of court cases. That's really mm. where a lot of the majority of the first kind of open my eyes type material, right, and from there I can work backwards and try and find better records. But, you know, I came at this story largely from a court case in Alabama in the late 1960s that was a a very standard, I guess, civil rights case heard in the court of Judge Frank Johnson um, and that exposed the conditions, right, and he drew on in that court case on a previous federal government inspection. And so those records are hard to come by. Like the federal department that undertook that inspection seems to have disappeared. Those records are not in the National Archives, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I'm what, very, what was the agency? Yeah, so it's the Office of Equal Health Opportunity was part of Health Education and Welfare. And, and they're just gone. Well, so <laughs> the archivist says we don't have a listing under that particular name. We think that once the work of that office was done, it was dissolved and the records gone. So I spent a long week in the National Archives trying to come at that from various different angles. And we did discover that there are some boxes that might have what we're looking for that are restricted. And so I've had to submit a freedom of information request. And they're they're restricted because of HIPAA or possibly. Some, yeah. I think that is part of the difficulty of when you're looking at trying to uncover conditions in hospitals, especially psychiatric hospitals, current legislation around patient privacy has put an automatic kind of stop yeah. on accessibility of those records. Even when I personally might have an IRB ruling or I'll sign a statement that says I promise to be ethical right. um, and to not use patients' names, there is a lot of fear. And also because I am dealing with a more recent period, you know, so the, the reality is that some of the people who I'm writing about, even without knowing their names, may still be alive, right, or have family who are alive. So, Sure. Yeah, so HIPAA has has made that more difficult and archives are much more protective. Um, You know, I've been in the state archives here in Georgia where I just wanted to get a sense of how the um, Community Mental Health Act meant that patients were moved and I had no interest in actually names. I just wanted the data, but I couldn't look at those files because they had patients' names in them. And they haven't been redacted because it's low priority for archives to make those records accessible. 
Yeah, I, I really sympathize with and appreciate the 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 work that you're doing to try to get access to this. And I, I wonder sometimes if if there should be some kind of a a historian exception for hip you know past a certain time horizon because I I know even going much further back than the period you're working in, uh, it can be really impossible to access records that uh, otherwise just sit there. I mean, I think I think as historians, we know not to use people's names, right? And so it would be really easy to make information available to us that we at least signed some sort of contract where we absolutely said we would not use names even if we came across them. But the fact that there are names sometimes means you don't even get to look at them before before they're snatched out from underneath you. Yeah, and you mentioned that as well, that you have been in research room situations where the archivists, you're delivered records, Mm -hmm. and then then they're repossessed because of privacy concerns after the fact. Right, and they bought me, and again, this is because of neglecting the, uh, in the archives, not because of the archivist's fault, but just uh, prioritizing and how they spend their money, uh, especially here in you know in the south, where a lot of the money on digitization, etc., or archival maintenance gets spent on um, civil war, right? Mm-hmm. So making sure that people have access to family records and stuff. So that's all kind of important, but medical or you know institutional records are not high on their list of priorities. So. I was sitting there at the Georgia archives and I had called up some boxes that I think no one had really ever looked at. Yeah. And they were related to the administration of the State Department of Mental Health. And they happened to have patient files in there in relation to transfer of patients, so moving people from one facility to another. And the archivist saw that there was a little red asterisks on the box and she came over and she's like oh no you can't look at those (laughs) and she just took the box back off me so I didn't even really get to look at what else was in the box frustrating yeah it's fun times frustrating (laughs) you talk about the way that the language changes uh and evolves in some ways to to camouflage uh the maintenance of white supremacy, notwithstanding these mandates that are coming down from the federal courts and from, I guess, post-1964 from the Justice Department. Uh, what Could you talk a little bit more about those? Because um, that sounds terribly interesting. Yeah, there, there's this really interesting moment, I think, where the mandate from the courts around integration leads to a kind of obfuscation of racial data. So one way to not have to demonstrate whether you're integrated or not is to just not collect the data, right? So there's this kind of um, shift in the records where previously, before 1963, I have really great data that is very clearly categorized along racial lines and this relates to say diagnostic criteria right so I'll have a table that says these are how many people that we've diagnosed with schizophrenia these are the men these are the women these are the black men these are the black women right Mm -hmm. that stops 
from about 1963-1964 because of this, you know, awareness that there's going to be money available, that it will rely on a facility being racially integrated. So if you're not collecting the data, you can't really be brought to task. So there is this kind of, I would say, a deliberate yeah. obfuscation. Yeah. And then a kind of a de facto, um, let's just not. Right, because it's not as if just because the law is evolving that attitudes are. No. They're not, right? No, yeah, they don't change. Yeah. Overnight, right. <laughs> right? There are there are plenty of um, people who don't believe that racial segregation is necessary in medical or psychiatric facilities, and they will and they do argue that there's no racial difference, and so they're saying that you don't necessarily need to classify people along racial lines, and yet the disparities still exist. Right, so it's a it's really complicated the way language changes from this kind of let's move away from race based diagnosis to then how that actually hides the continuation of segregation. Yeah, uh, and and that's only going to be harder for you to track given the the inaccessibility issues that that we were talking about. Right. So there really is quite a bit of of work left to be done in this area. Yeah, um, absolutely. I find it, you know, later in the records even, I happened to have come across a court case from the late 1970s related to children, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this yet. Uh, and it happens to have patient records in uh, in the court case, so they're submitted into evidence, so they're um, publicly available. They have been redacted, so I can use them. And they show a very clear difference in the way that racial language is used and the changing terminology. And it's really interesting to see some of the more remote hospitals or facilities talk about blackness and they'll use that word or they'll still use Negro even in the 1970s, um, but some are shifting towards this terminology of non-white, so white and non-white, and so non-white becomes this catch-all category. So it's, yeah. it is complicated. It's a very complicated moment in the history of psychiatry generally, I think, the, the late 50s and early 1960s because you have multiple factors that are transforming the way that psychiatry is done and the places and spaces in which it's done. And so you have drugs from the 1950s, like Thorazine in particular, that can be used inside institutions to calm people and make a large facility. Some of these facilities, the one in Georgia has 12,000 people in it. So drugs that help make an institution that size run smoothly are used in the system and are very welcome there. Where How they're used is a whole other story. Um and then from the 1960s, you have the move to community-based mental health. And so it's made possible because of those drugs, the belief that you can have people out in the community and have them be contained and um, calm and not causing harm to themselves or others. But it is also overlaid with an ideology about the legality of confinement and the advent of a patient's rights movement, so which also overlaps with civil rights. Yeah. Right? 
So it is a really complicated moment. And then you have Medicare and Medicaid that come along in 1965, which changes the funding model again. Right, because that also creates this whole, on the one hand, this pipeline of federal money, but there's also a lot of strings attached to that federal money. And so those institutions are trying to be responsive to that as well. It's not that different from we see with Obamacare, I guess, later on, right? No, it's a very similar situation, I think. And you see a lot of the same resistance that let's not take too much of that federal funding because we don't want to be told what to do. And that's definitely what because we don't like the strings that are right. <laughs> you know, the, the whole in the court case in Alabama, you know, the, the attorney general says here is the federal government getting its nose under the under the tent like a camel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of right, yeah. Yeah. Anti federalism, you know, and whether that's a, an actual just a rhetorical device or a or a real political strategy is also it, difficult to to unpack. I have spoken to a psychiatrist um, and, a, and a lawyer in Alabama at the moment who's bringing a lot of prison court cases, right, because we see the replication of these problems in the prison system. And I said, is it just because they don't want to spend money? Like, is that what it's about? Is it is it still racism? And he said, yeah, they just don't want to spend money on those people. Right. Yeah. Um, or at least if they are spending money on those people, it's to it's to implant them in these carceral networks that where the the degree of social control is even that much more extreme. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you do have a, a place in the talk where you talk about the interconnection between the public health infrastructure that's committed to psychiatric treatment versus the carceral networks that are in place in these localities. And uh, what that, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, I think of madness and civilization, right? And um, discipline and punish. So, you know, because I mean, so there, 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 it does feel like there's, there's quite a bit of a Foucauldian stuff going on in the talk. Is that yeah. th- those frameworks are important, right? To, to the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I, I defy anyone who's doing the history of psychiatry to have not read Foucault, like, yeah. you know, and everything is a prison. Um, I do, have that point of view, generally speaking, you know, I, I think uh, that is my position is that I am anti-confinement. Um, and I do, I've read my Foucault. I have a whole stack of books sure. <laughs> over there. But I All the it, best people do, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, I don't think that there's any point in trying to hide that, right? I think that his, Foucault himself is to some extent a historian of psychiatric um practices uh and so he's part of our genealogy to use his own term um but you do see it you know it's really hard not to see the way that these institutions are operating especially in the south but it's true everywhere but you see this almost directness about it in the south in a way that i haven't seen elsewhere to the same extent in terms of how it's even articulated right so when the big hospitals start to close down in the early 1970s 
there is a conversation in Alabama in particular between the chief of police in Birmingham and the superintendent of the hospital saying, what, do you, what am I meant to do with these people that are turning up on my doorstep, right? So when you release 4,000 people from a hospital and you don't have adequate community-based services in place for them, it's almost inevitable that they will end up in the carceral system. Yeah, there's recidivism. There is a right, right, and whether that's deliberate or not, we could debate that. But but it but it has um, it does feel inevitable in a way because people are scared. Right, people are scared of the mentally ill. There aren't support services. Families aren't supported, and so people are left homeless and with no job skills. I think that there is a disparity in terms of service provision that is historical. So where areas are more likely to be communities of color, they are less likely to have local services. Mm-hmm available and then there is unfortunately a very strong what has been called a diagnostic apartheid so a really quite severe disparity in diagnostic criteria that particularly badly affects I was going to say young people but it but it's all real people of of color that really draws on these long historical attitudes about difference that, oh, they, they just don't get depressed or African-Americans are more likely to be schizophrenic. And so that's how they're more likely to be diagnosed. You're in a, a medical, a nursing yes. school, you said, right? Are there historian jobs in in nursing schools? <laughs> the, or is there, is there like one of you? <laughs> like, I think there's like two of us. It's, um you know, nursing and health sciences generally in the United States, they're very driven by NIH funding, very heavily, you know, bench science, science is, is the thing. And that is that is true of um, most schools of nursing. They're driven by metrics that are about research money from the NIH. Historians don't get money from the NIH, but I'm very fortunate that there are other places in the United States that support humanistic inquiry and make that connection between the humanities and the health professions. So I'm part of a Mellon Foundation program that is specific to Emory uh, that deliberately sought to bring the humanities into the health professions. So there's one of me in public health, there's one in law. Um, Interestingly, not one in the School of Medicine, but the School of Nursing saw the need for a historian and not just a historian that would document nursing but would do exactly what you're talking about, really try and bring the humanities to bear on really complicated social problems. Maybe this podcast can help, you know, bring bring more of those two spaces together. Right. I think that any university that has a school of nursing, public health, medicine should have a historian in those schools. And I think especially if you're committed or say you're committed to issues of disparities and social justice, then you can't do that from a science point of view, right? You really need someone to help unpack the root causes 
and that mm-hmm. requires a historian and, well, and, and yeah i mean even if you just talk about I, you as a historian have to submit to irb reviews and things like right. that right yeah. right because you're working with medical records yeah. and so that yeah. implicates the, the medical ethics and of uh, human subject ethics side of the equation. And yeah. that itself implies humanistic inquiry and evaluation. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, you can't you can't consign any of those reviews, that process, just to the science side alone. No, um, it is funny though. I, I have put in an IRB um, you know, for my new project, and I was politely told that it wasn't considered research. Like what? So <laughs> the ability of the sciences to speak to the humanities, there's still a big language barrier. Yeah. I, well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I find is also a, uh, just a, a, a conceptual barrier, the way that people understand it. I mean, if you talk to policymakers here in Washington, you know, they completely get the value of investing in science. You know, it, it produces technology yeah. that can be marketed. I mean, it, 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 there's all these, you kind of don't really have to persuade them that there's value in public investment and creating public goods around scientific work, right? Um, humanistic work, different story. <laughs> I mean, they really need to be kind of handheld into yeah, that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I've had those conversations. I mean, I try to be a voice for, you know, the kind of history community and 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 funding of the historical humanities in the policy space. Uh, and I I, I run into this all the time. Yeah, it is really into that value, right? What? How, how do you measure the value? And are you measuring it in terms of immediate? grant funding or are you really willing to measure the value of the humanities in terms of long-term system change and i think a lot of people don't want that they don't really want the system to change it's benefiting a lot of people the way it is generating millions of dollars yeah you know that goes into elevating a school's ranking yeah there's a lot of inertia attached to that for sure I think it's changing, though. I was really thrilled lately to be asked to present my work as a grand rounds for Emory Psychiatry. And, you know, grand rounds are usually clinical, right? So they'll take a clinical case and pull it apart. So to to be invited as a historian to give a grand rounds presentation to a bunch of psychiatrists on a historical project was incredibly um really rewarding. And the feedback I got was overwhelmingly supportive. When I was a younger person, uh, 20, 25 years ago, there there did seem to be this big uh, divergence going on in the field. There was a, uh, there were history of science people that were carving out this separatist kind of niche within the profession. And then in some cases, building like entirely separate departments in some places. Um, History of medicine was sort of in the same boat. Was that a good judgment call? Disciplinary boundaries are always problematic, I think. And I do feel them as a trained historian Mm. working in a clinical school that is quite siloed from the rest of the academic enterprise at a big university that has a liberal arts core. So it has taken a good four or five years to break down some of those disciplinary barriers and part of it is this kind of history of the specialization of knowledge right and who gets to who gets to speak for that discipline um 
I, you know, it, it, yeah, it's an interesting question about how do we find ways to just be historians and to bring historical work to bear on contemporary problems. Yeah. It seemed illogical to me at the time. I'll just put my cards on the table about this. You know, I mean, is if you study the history of science, is that does that implicate some a, a methodological approach that is so different as to warrant separate institutional walls? I think the silos tend to assume somehow that medicine or science or nursing or public health are not part of society that they're somehow separate. But in fact, you they're an integral part of the way that we live and an integral part of the way that American society in particular is structured. And so they are complex historical problems, not just history of medicine problems. And before we wrap, I just, uh, I wanted to ask you what's going on with you, right? I mean, this is your project right now. This is what you're working on right now. Um, it's a, it's a book that you're doing? Yeah. 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 I'm very fortunate. I have, I was awarded the National Library of Medicine grant for scholarly works in biomedicine. Um, well done. Yeah. Well done. So I was so excited to get that last year. So that um, has facilitated extensive archival work. And I am very excited that the project is under contract with the with UNC University of North Carolina Press and we're even more excited because we're pursuing an open access publishing um, route so it will be a book that you can buy and read off a shelf but we're also developing it as an open access digital humanities type project so people will be able to read the same book online and then also have an enhanced experience because I'm interviewing people and we're doing a whole heap of cool digital stuff so that people can really participate in um in this project in a real public facing kind of way all right so listeners be on the lookout for kylie's next next work and in the meanwhile you also should all go follow her on twitter right now because your twitter feed is one of my favorites i mean i i, I don't you. i don't say that just because we're chatting right now i mean it's I do, the dog yeah. pictures isn't it <laughs> Well, and, you know, you had all those beautiful photos of the beach in Australia yeah. and your lunches and knitting. You're a knitter. Yes. Yes, I knit so I don't kill people. Was it? Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a kind of a, an anxiety management tool, right? Knitting. I mean, everybody yeah. that I know knits is really uses it to uh, kind of clarify their own headspace. And, it's really great. It's just gr really great to be out of my head and just doing something with my hands and not thinking. And I think for me, like people often say to me, like, how do you cope? You know, because the archival stuff is really rough sometimes. And I'm like, I'm okay. I just go home and knit. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I can I can put that on my list for 2021 because yeah. I did I did have friends that took up knitting during the pandemic. Yeah. One in particular who, you know, he hired somebody to teach him and everything. And awesome. Yeah, and That's he wonderful. he just loves it. He's not made me socks or anything yet, but I get on that. Yeah, <laughs> Kylie Smith. This was so wonderful. Thank. Great you so to talk much. to you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Please join us again next time for Dirty Discrimination, Sanitation and Civil Rights Protest in New York, 1962 to 1970. I 
never knew as much about the interconnection between sanitation policy, the New York City Department of Sanitation, and the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s until listening to Tina Peabody's wonderful talk. Don't miss it. We'll catch you next time.